Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from the coolest places on the planet, quite literally. Today on the show, we have two co-hosts here who you've probably heard before. Myself, Christy Ruo, I'm a geological engineer based in Canada and focused on the Arctic. And with me is Jack Buckingham, a marine biologist who's based in the UK, and Jack's research is based in the Antarctic region. And we will be discussing today some polar or near-polar news. Yeah, we thought we'd do something a little bit different this week, because often, as I'm sure regular listeners to the podcast will know, we just have one guest and one host, but they kind of like tell us all about their research and their experiences and stuff like that. The episodes usually end up being about like an hour long, which is, uh, you know, a good enough time to get into someone's research. But we thought you might appreciate uh, like some shorter episodes. So um, hopefully that's what this one will be. And we thought something cute to do would be like to talk about polar news headlines, things we've seen in the news from uh, from the Arctic, the Antarctic, the cryosphere, whatever. So we've both gone away, haven't we? And we found uh, a couple of headlines and we're going to kind of like explain them to each other. So yeah, so some of these stories are not exactly going to be in either of our, I suppose, wheelhouses per se. We know it might be uh, um, just things that we've seen on the news and done a bit of research about, but uh, hopefully we've got a bit of polar, you know, background knowledge to just chat about it and hopefully make it interesting. So yeah, so just quickly, I have to say it's super nice to have kind of a fellow host with me because you've hosted episodes as well. Uh, so yeah, so it's um, this is going to be fun. All right, so let's just dive straight in. Would you like to go first with a headline? Sure. This headline is that Biden suspends lease for oil drilling in Arctic National Wild Refuge. Okay, fabulous. Okay, that well, to me, that headline sounds like good news. Is it good news? Yeah, I think it's good news. Um, it's an interesting one in that there seems to be so many sides uh, to the story. So like Jack said, we're not professionals on this. So we'll, we'll try to be, um, we'll try to be factual, but uh, give you kind of maybe a few different perspectives. Overall, it seems like it's good news in that it's suspended on the basis of requiring more in-depth research into if it will affect the animals if they pursue this drilling. It's quite interesting in that it was proposed in 2017 by Trump, but really this is like this goes back quite a long time to when the Arctic National Wild Refuge in Alaska was set up, and that was in 1980. Um, which surprised me. And at the time, they said that the they, they left the coastal plains, which is where this oil drilling is planned to go ahead. And they left this area such that it wasn't protected from drilling so that they could, in fact, do this someday. So yeah, it seems like they had thought it through to protect the animals as much as possible, but still trying to represent the Alaskan uh, population in if they ever wanted to go down this economic endeavor. Sure. So, I mean, but there's like, there's oil drilling in elsewhere in Alaska quite a lot, I imagine, right? It's part of the economy, I suppose. Yeah. And from what I read, it over half of Alaskans are pro-drilling in this particular location. So 
I would say that this decision by Biden wasn't necessarily the local perspective. That being said, the there were a lot of environmental groups, of course, and indigenous groups that came together after after Biden made this decision and thanked Biden for taking this step to require more research. So there's perhaps indigenous groups in these locations that would agree very much with the decision. Yeah, you'd imagine they'd be kind of relieved, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I was just reading quickly on the the, the BBC article of this. Uh, this was something that, even though you say it's been debated for a while, like the the leases for the land, I think were just sold like in Trump, literally in Trump's last days of office. He kind of, for want of a better word, rushed it through. Um, yeah, I think it was proposed in 2017 by Trump. And then it seems like at the end of his, right, yeah, two weeks before he left office, they rushed this through. So that in itself suggests it's a fairly hasty decision. Yeah. And I mean, on the one hand, there's the obvious thing, like, why, why here? Why is he chosen like an Arctic refuge <laughs> as a good place for drilling, apart from the fact there's a lot of oil there. Although I was also reading, it's very kind of, you know, remote. There's no infrastructure there currently for this kind of drilling and stuff. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an expensive, you know, there's not going to be a lot of output, I suppose. And also why invest in another oil well, <laughs> well I suppose is the, uh, the uh... yeah. And I, I think that's, that seems to be maybe the most significant part here is that Biden has said that he wants to, you know, end the oil regime and and move into renewables. But interestingly, as he he suspended this lease, but at the same time, they the Biden administration has just supported yet another oil drilling lease in Alaska. So I think maybe that this uh, headline is making big news, but it's covering up a, a larger story that it's it's not as clear cut that we're moving right to renewables yet, quite yet. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting because it totally makes it seem like oh, has Biden come to <laughs> to right the wrong and save the day? Um, I suppose, but when. This other one that he has just signed off on is that I suppose that's maybe not in an Arctic refuge, as in not in a wilderness area. So maybe it's a bit less. Um, yeah, correct. You know, there's less stakeholders. Although you know, I mean, I mean, isn't most of Alaska really nice? <laughs> we like it all to be wilderness and <laughs> pristine. Or yeah, it is. and the wildlife refuge it uh, it's home to migrating polar bears, caribou, and birds from six continents, which I think is uh, a pretty fun fact. And and that really makes it that makes it quite special for us to protect. But as you say, there's this whole extra aspect of transporting the oil from Alaska and in a place that's really complicated to, to build pipelines because the ground is frozen. It tankers are really dangerous because you have more more ice on the water. So I do think this other project probably wouldn't have the average Americans vote, but it it likely does have popular vote in Alaska because they do, you know, rely on oil for economic activities right now. So I think that's, it, this like brings up a really interesting argument of, you know, we often say not in our own backyard and, you know, we want there to be economic activity going on somewhere else. But this is actually an example of the opposite that we almost all don't want this to happen in Alaska 
but the Alaskans seem to at least in part be for it. And I think that makes it, yeah, pretty tricky to take a stance on something that is really maybe doesn't affect most of us. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a gray area. It's one of those issues that's so complicated. It's like, you know, some people for and some people against with quite good reasons. How do you determine the value of people's arguments? I suppose. I mean, like you say, well, I'm quite happy that they're not drilling in an Arctic refuge. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of news to me, but it doesn't wouldn't really make that much difference, I suppose, to my life, as you say. Have you heard of NIMBYism, which is an acronym, not in my backyard? Mm. NIMBYism. So we're all <laughs> reverse NIMBYists, you know? Yes. That was, that was high school geography taught me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, should we move on to the next headline? Sure. Yes. So this headline has been people, uh, UK listeners will be familiar with this one probably. This says Arctic mammal spotted for the first time in Cornwall. And this is the news that this walrus has been sighted off the coast of Cornwall, which is in uh, on the south coast of the UK. It might have been on like not the bit of Cornwall that's actually the south coast, but it's at the bottom. It's at the bottom of the country. So really far from the Arctic, basically, <laughs> where you'd expect walruses to be. And this, so yeah, it's been, and the reason it's been in the news quite a lot is because it was first sighted in Ireland back in March, and then again in Wales, in Pembrokeshire more recently. So it's moving across the country further south. I'm pretty sure it's the same one because a, you know, we don't get a lot of walruses here. So the chances of there being two are <laughs> ridiculous. And uh, it has, you know, the same tusk shape. I think they can ID marine mammals pretty, pretty dyed on. Yeah, it's had a lot of uh, fun press because it likes to like kind of nap on, um, you know, like boat ramps or um, slipways. And yeah. uh, it was on the slipway of an RNLI, which is like the Royal National Lifeboat Institute here in the UK. And they had to move it because they needed to get a lifeboat out. So there was mm. like, photos of them trying to use a broom or an air horn to, <laughs> to just to move it, to encourage it off the ramp. Sorry. <laughs> so I normally think of walruses as, you know, like living in a big pack and they're all together. So have they commented on what this means for the walrus where are they planning on reuniting it or they're just letting nature be nature yeah they're, they're just letting nature be nature i think i mean it's they say it's unusual but it's not been super unheard of for walruses to turn up in the uk all i think particularly for just doing a bit of research it's not that unusual for adolescents to go particularly far afield in their search just for food but this is the this is the favorite part of my story when it was first sighted in ireland in march the press over there or someone i'm not sure must have looked around for someone to get like a comment on how did this walrus get here and i don't know who it was who commented but what was um the hypothesis that was like promoted as fact was that this walrus had fallen asleep on an iceberg which had drifted over and it had woken up in ireland <laughs> and uh, people were like huh? <laughs> I didn't know that could happen. And all the marine biologists were like, no, that's definitely not what happened. <laughs> but that was what was run in uh, quite a lot of the news. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, so that's funny. Yeah, and another funny thing, whoever it was said that it's, um, you know, it was a one-off, we never get walruses here. And then a lot of people were like, oh, we've had like, this is the 21st walrus sighting that we've had in Ireland in <laughs> however long. So, <laughs> So like I say, it's not super uncommon. I remember there was one in Scotland a couple of years ago. So um, mm, cool. Yeah, but I don't know if it's a product of 
I don't know if their range is expanding in terms of we've all seen the issue, the f- images of walruses having issues, having their range restricted because there's less ice for them to, you know, live and rest on. So maybe they're spreading out, but that's conjecture. I've got no idea. Um, so have they decided where they think this walrus came from? So they think this one's from Greenland or, um, you know, from okay. the North, from the North Atlantic population um i did find a little interesting fact there are twenty thousand walruses in the north atlantic which are this this used the word separate but i don't know what it means by separate um from the ones in the pacific and siberia i don't know if there's any population mingling and the ones in the north atlantic are coping better with climate change supposedly again should have done more research i'm sorry everyone for listening but, <laughs> but there you go so this one's from the north atlantic so there you go and um, yeah, so it's been rather unimaginatively christened as Wally the Walrus. So there you go. And it keeps popping up in our news. <laughs> well, it's nice that the public is interested in wildlife. Sure. They seem to be, they seem to be quite invested. Yeah. So this one is a bit closer to home for me and a topic that's maybe a bit harder for some some listeners. Um, So there are 215 unmarked graves that were just discovered at a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, which is in Western Canada. And maybe for some background for folks who, who don't know what residential schools are in Canada, but essentially residential schools were schools for Indigenous children that were run by the Roman Catholic Church. And the idea was to have these students conform to a more European way of life. And there's many atrocities that are associated with this era of colonialism, I guess we could say, but um, maybe the bit more shocking part is is how far these schools went in time. So the last one was closed in 1996. So we don't really think of colonialism in Canada as, you know, continuing to 1996, but um, this is kind of an eye-opening news news story about how, reminding us mostly of of what has happened and and how much reconciliation really still needs to occur in Canada with our Indigenous people and the European settlers. So the school itself was open from 1980 to the 1970s. And the First Nations have long known that there may have been graves at the time. There were graves at graveyards at, at probably all schools, but mortality rates for Indigenous people at the time were much higher, especially at residential schools. So up to four times higher um, is estimated for a a child that was Indigenous at a a residential school compared to a European descent child who is at another Roman Catholic school. So that kind of puts in perspective how, how much more these students, I guess, had to put up with yeah, so they they recently looked into using geophysics to map these graves in a in a location that was thought that there may be unmarked graves, and they found using ground penetrating radar, which is a geophysics technique that's commonly used, they found two hundred and fifteen unmarked graves, and 
the, the youngest of those was a three-year-old, they think. Um, they're expecting to find more. So they're all individual graves. Um, it's been in, marked in the, in the news. It's been called a, a mass grave, which I think gives this idea of um, a much more crude way of burial. But um, these, these were unmarked um, and it's thought to be completely undocumented as well. So there's no record of their names or, or um, how they died. Wow, that's particularly shocking. And especially that last bit that there would be no record at all. It's just, yeah, maybe it's not that shocking for <laughs> for people who listen. Um, so, I mean, what would the cause of, what do they think the cause of mortality was for a lot of these children? Just the product of translocation, like exposure to different diseases or, I don't, I've got no idea what, what's it likely to be. Yeah, it's hard to, um, like, really, I'm no expert on this, so I'd, I wouldn't want to suggest sure. that. That I know, but definitely, I think that the number one factor of of high mortality rates was they didn't have the same access to to medicine or mostly to hygiene. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I did read that fifty percent of recorded deaths are due to tuberculosis. Right at this time, just in at all residential schools across Canada. So that that kind of puts into perspective that you know, that, that there's a pretty major hygiene component where kids were just getting sick more and um, didn't have the same care, whether that's nutrition or, you know, even sleep, I would imagine would differ pretty drastically. So it, I think that's really what's so hard is it, it's hard to say exactly what happened. It's, it's not clear cut. So, you know, some people will say like, there's gray area here, but I think the, the, the story that's coming to the surface is, it's an atrocity and, and we need to be talking about it and, and something, you know, we can't just pretend that this didn't happen. And that's probably the most important part of the story is, is not perhaps knowing all of the details about how it came to be, but starting to care enough to uncover them. Sure. Yeah. The headline that I'm looking at that says that it sparked a Canada wide search, I suppose. So is that just revisiting other sites for potentially more, more graves? Yeah, I think that's what that means. Yeah. So residential schools were all across the country. And this particular school happens to be, it, it was the largest of its kind in, in its peak. So it had over 500 students at one time. So I think it would, it was a site that they, they had had, you know, lots of history and, and lots of reasons to look in this particular location and lots of survivors that had stories of, of what had occurred here. And I think uh, the larger the school, the, there are more survivors that can talk about it. And that really is probably the the number one way that they found information. And, you know, I think that will go on for looking at the rest of the residential schools. And yeah, it's pretty interesting, I think, for Canadians to, you know, think about these schools that are in, you know, all the places that we grew up and, and how we didn't talk about them when, you know, when I was, I mean, I'm 30 now, so... Now it's we're like becoming much more progressive in in how we talk about this. But when I was in in grade school, we didn't talk about this at all, and there was no mention of residential schools. And that really has just come about in the past decade, where we actually teach this to young students in in a way of thinking about reconciliation and how you know acknowledging the past is probably the first step in more peaceful future. Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was gonna, I was definitely going to ask you that, like how whether you ever kind of learn about that stuff at school because 
you know, colonialism is not something that I was taught at school, you know, in English schools, um, again, maybe 20 years ago now. So it might be different now. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. So and, and in this article I have in front of me, I mean, Trudeau is being a little bit critiqued for not kind of specifying what action is going to be taken mm-hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, the Canadian government has a, a document of 94 action items that are to be taken. And so it's kind of like an action plan, but it's been critiqued as not being enough. And I've also heard that the Pope apologized for this for the first time, just I think last week. Okay. And right after these these burial sites were found and these 215 marked graves, like everywhere on the highways right now, there's... Uh, orange flags and in all the hockey games everybody everyone is wearing an orange flag in as a memorial so it's really being talked about a lot and it's probably seen as a really big deal that the the catholic church has apologized for the first time but even that i've heard lots of critique about maybe they didn't apologize yeah they'll always be you know (laughs) it's one of those things where it's like they've apologized but it should have been sooner so I thought it was very um, kind of touching the memorials that people are doing with the, you know, placing children's shoes on steps of churches and public buildings mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems like it's really touching people. And yeah, it's nice to see that the Canadian population is reacting in such a such a way that they're caring what happened to these these kids rather than, yeah, just continuing to ignore the past. Okay, so this is an interesting one because I found this, uh, this came to my attention just today, actually, and I saw it on my Twitter because I was, um, you know, you know, when you go on Twitter and you search things. So I searched Polar News just to see if there's anything super recent. And I don't know why, but this came up and it, it was a Daily Mail article which had been retweeted by the Flat Earth Society or something. So at first I was like, okay, that's probably not <laughs> something we're going to be real or talk about. But then I looked into it and it is a real thing. So this is from uh, CNN and um, et cetera. So this is Polar Pod, uh, a floating laboratory which will flip onto its side and drift around Antarctica to research the Southern Ocean. So this is... The vibe I'm getting from this, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the, what's it called? The Great Ocean Cleanup Project is where, mm-hmm. you know, where they put that big boom out in the Pacific Gyre to try and catch. It's kind of giving me that kind of vibe. So this is like a whole okay. laboratory, which they're planning on like towing into the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and then just leaving there to like drift around Antarctica collecting data. So, yeah. So, um it's been designed by Jean-Louis Etienne. Apologies if I mispronounced that name. But he is, a, you know, a big polar person. He's in his 70s now, but he was the first person to reach the North Pole solo on skis. Uh, in 2010, he flew across the Arctic Ocean in like a, you know, not a hot air balloon, but, you know, the, the science version. Um, so, yeah, so he's a, you know, a, a kind of explorer and environmentalist and quite a big name, I think. He's in his 70s, but he's designed this floating lab. And apart from the fact that it's just a floating lab, what's special about it is it kind of it kind of flips vertically. So, you know, the bit that you live in is 20 meters above sea level and then it extends like 80 meters below sea level. And then all of that ballast should hopefully keep it really stable in the waves because I'm sure anyone who has been down there will know the weather (laughs) and the waves in the Southern Ocean (laughs) are pretty insane. So, um, so yeah. 
it's still being um, built or it might not even have been started being built yet. I'm not sure. So it is, um, you know, it's planned to be launched in 2024. So keep your eye on that. But it sounds super, I mean, can you imagine? I don't know. I don't know also if you're familiar with the kind of the flip platform. Uh, float. No, I'm not. So the, the floating instrument platform, which is run by uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography and has been run by them since the 1960s. So that is kind of along the similar vein. It looks very much like a a boat, I suppose, or like a tanker. Um, it, ter- it, it sails out horizontally and then it just kind of flips on its axis like 90 degrees. And then it, it sits there and the bit at the front is what you kind of live and work on. And then uh, underneath is kind of the, the anchor, for better words. So yeah, and that's been running since the 60s very successfully. So it's kind of based on that design. So that stays in one okay. place, I believe. And this will just drift. So, so how do they board this new vessel? Or okay. how many people, does it, do we know any information about like how many people it can house? Or yeah, I'm wondering like, do we fly up to it on a helicopter? Or is it, you know, a, another boat can kind of pair to it? Good questions. Good logistical question. I can answer some of them. Um, it's being launched from um, South Africa, so I assume there'll be people on it when it first goes out and it's being towed. Um, it has sails and a propeller, so it can kind of maneuver out of the way of, you know, icebergs and stuff like that. I'm not sure if it has um, an engine good enough to like sail that far, like conventional ships would. Um, it might be good enough to kind of dock with another ship. Uh, it, from from the pictures, it doesn't look like it has a helipad, so I imagine it'll be a ship-to-ship kind of transfer. There, it will have a crew of eight people, three, uh, sorry, four people kind of crewing the vessel, uh, three scientific personnel, and one cook. It sounds wild. I can't really imagine it would be incredible to like be on just drifting. Yeah, around. it sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. It'd be a really good um, setting for like an Agatha Christie murder mystery. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Murder at sea <laughs> on a floating um, vessel. Yeah, so 2024, hopefully that's going to be launched. So yeah, keep an eye on it. So just quickly before we go, we have almost a kind of a live update for you, I suppose. And it is on our story about Wally the Walrus. So between the time of recording and the time when this episode is coming out, uh, the last thing I had heard was that he had left Cornwall and was heading towards France. But now he's been sighted in Spain. And residents of the UK will be aware that he's been in all of our news again this week because he's back in the Silly Isles, which are off the tip of Cornwall. So it seems like he's coming back northwards, maybe heading back home towards the North Atlantic. So Wally the Walrus, it seems, does have a bit of a penchant for trying to climb onto people's boats. I assume it's because he's missing kind of having floating ice to be able to rest on from all this lots of swimming that he's been doing. I believe he popped someone's paddleboard to Bernus Bay. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a bit of a, a fun news item. Although the local authorities are reminding people down there oh, and everywhere, if you come across Wally the Walrus, please do try and give him the space that he needs you know he uh, walruses are a protected species they're not used to uh, human interaction probably not used to boat traffic although he's, 
he's seen a lot of it recently. So, you know, just uh, just be sensible. It's like when you see other marine mammals and large marine species, just try and try and give them, you know, you're in their environment to give them their space that they need. Don't be getting too close for a good picture for the gram or anything like that. Just be just be nice and sensible. So that's it. That's all of our stories on Wally the Walrus. Who knows? Maybe he will be back in our next news episode. Okay, that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. This was our first kind of little newscast. I hope that you uh, enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to our podcast in all of your, you know, wherever you get your podcasts from. If you'd like to leave us a little review as well, we would not object unless it's bad. <laughs> but we'll take constructive criticism. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, and also, if you'd like to contact us, please, uh, you can email these are polar times at gmail.com. Once more, that email is these are polar times at gmail.com, or you can tweet apex at polar underscore research. Uh, so, yeah, so that's goodbye from me and goodbye from my co host. Yeah, thanks for uh, the chat today, Jack. It was super fun. I hope maybe we'll do kind of like monthly ones or something, but I have a feeling that some of our other podcast group members are going to be releasing some in other languages as well so if english is not your first language and i speak too quickly for you a i apologize and b hopefully there'll be non-english language episodes coming out soon so look them up okay thanks for listening please note that whilst this is an apex production the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.